0: The following podcast is brought to you by the Fantasy Animation Research Network. If you'd like to get involved in the conversation, then please do visit our website, fantasy-animation.org. When you're there, you can have a little look around, you can read our blog posts, you can listen again to some of these podcasts, and you can also join our mailing list. We are currently looking for contributors to write up short posts that cover a range of media that engage with the relationship between fantasy and animation. You are welcome to write film reviews, conference reviews, uh, reports, wider editorials and generally keep us and our readers up to date on everything fantasy animation. For more information on how to submit posts please do visit the website and get in touch. For now, we hope you enjoy the show. In the town where I was born Lived a man who sailed to sea And he told us of his life in the land of submarine we all live in a
1: yellow submarine, yellow submarine. Yellow submarine. We all live in hello and welcome back submarine. to the Fantasy animation podcast we're here um, to uh, talk about yellow submarine the 1968 uh, beatles animated psychedelic classic Uh, Recently re-released into cinemas here in the UK, or at least was recent when we recorded this podcast. Chris and I are fresh-faced. I've just come from a screening uh, here in sunny London at the Curzon Bloomsbury, uh, where we enjoyed uh, today's screening. I'd never seen seen the film before, Chris? No,
0: I'd never seen the film before, and I'm kind of... I'm still reeling. I'm reeling from the thoughts that I've had, I had both during the film and subsequently as I try to... Desperately formulate into something that resembles a coherent set of comments that I'm about to make.
1: Um, Before we went into the cinema, Chris uh, informed me that he had a bit of a headache, so we had to stop off on the way so we can buy some uh, various uh, cures for that. We then watched Yellow Submarine, which is back. Would... The headache's back. The <laughs>
0: headache is back. Um, in a kind of good way, it's it's uh, the film is very cheery. It's very joyful. It's very colourful. Yeah. Um, its animated style is 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 very interesting in terms of its kind of reference points given that this is late 60s um, certainly this is a British animated film but it it's very much uh, post Hollywood golden age in terms of its visual style so there's some interesting points of of, uh, reference outwards to other American studios and and styles of the the time but it's uh, it's a musical it's many things one of which it's a musical Um, not a musical again in in the classical Hollywood sense it's it's a musical where the fantasy of the musical numbers bleeds over into all of the film. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, there's some really interesting... Certainly there is some interesting things to say about it.
1: And and I can confirm that one of us really liked it and was digging every single moment. Well, maybe not every single moment, but a lot of the movie. I found it an uh, absolutely joyful experience, if slightly overwhelming. Uh, and Chris had some other thoughts. My thoughts
0: were... Uh, a different a difference in terms of degree rather than kind, perhaps. One of the things that struck me about it was its its reflexive tone about uh, animation and about animation animated space, and certainly in some of the scenes I was seeing in both in character design and the deconstruction of animation. I was seeing Pixar's Inside Out at every turn. Uh, sure. So yeah, I'm 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 excited. I'm perhaps more excited ultimately to talk about the film than I am to see it again soon ever again yes yeah, yeah but it's worth worth chatting about certainly for this for this podcast because it's the first time we've we've started to engage with British animation mm-hmm. which has its own sort of parallel history and a very strong history in animation um, but um, it's it's does something different with the with the fantasy it it's it's not a film where fantasy and it's an immersive fantasy everything about it is sort of bonkers and topsy-turvy and and I was thinking the carnivalesque I was thinking sort of the the it's 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 post-modern in a, in a strange sort of way it's so there's there's lots going on that hopefully we'll be able to unpack
1: yeah absolutely absolutely I'm uh, I'm up for it I think uh I've got quite a bit to say about 60s culture and fantasies because um, I've done a little bit of work in the past, not in the uh, UK context, but in the US context on the relationship between counterculturalism and fantasy cinema. Uh, And I think a lot of that work uh, felt relevant to this film as we were watching it. Uh, I think there's loads. I think we're looking at fantasy at a very different kind of fantasy, although the sort of basic plot structure is very much within the world of immersive fantasies that we've looked at in the past, like well, something like uh, My Neighbor Totoro, or indeed Jason and the Argonauts, classic fantasy fair. We go to fairy, fairy lands and magical kingdoms and encounter strange monsters. All that stuff happens. But I think something else is very much going on here in terms of uh, fantasy. And I also quite like to talk about uh, psychedelia and, and other kinds of fantasy uh, and surrealism and all kind of fun things like that.
0: Is one of the differences or one of the, the um, moments to think about uh, in terms of the, the, its difference is that in this instance, for me, narrative was negligible. Sure. It, be- it begins, I mean, let's begin at the beginning. Can I,
1: can I say, before we start rec- recounting the plot, yes. uh, these are going to be some of my favourite sentences that I have ever said as a human being on this planet, uh, and we shall strap in for them.
0: Yes, as we move through the seas of time, of science, of monsters, of nothing, the foothills of the headlands, and then ultimately end with the sea of holes. Yeah. Anyway, it goes so, to
1: something when Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds comes on in this movie. And, and you go of familiarity, yeah, but something something um, I know and, and can can uh, comprehend. Absolutely. A bit,
0: of, a bit of kind of coherence. No, I was all I was going to say in, in terms of beginning at the beginning is yeah. the Once Upon a Time. It struck me yeah. that we have the narrative voiceover. Once Upon a Time, it's it's a very ironic. Commentary in some sense, it's certainly not. I would be interested to think about the film in terms of sincerity. It's very playful. and I don't know. Don't know where sincerity fits, but the introduction, the opening voiceover, "Once upon a time," and the move into Pepperland, yeah, seems... which is very
1: pastoral imagery. For yes. a moment, we get something akin to, say, the Shire in yes. uh, Lord well, of the Rings. Or... Uh, we we.
0: For a moment, we get something that looks vaguely like an establishing shot of where where events are going to take place. And it's only subsequently that I've understood that I thought a lot of the film took place over ground and couldn't understand why a submarine was um, floating. Then I discovered that Pepperland is a paradise under the sea, but then also the submarine floats in the air somehow. So both of those things I got wrong. Yes. Um, and so uh, we,
1: you are going to have a field day when we get to the Beatles' house in Liverpool. Yes. and the various I liked that princes. bit. I, like, I liked
0: that bit. It's so actually that, that that brings me to the the I suppose the st- the style of the film. I was interested in its bold colours, its use of the line. So its its style is certainly post Disney. It's not it's not uh, hyper real in the sense that we we've, we've talked about before. It's although
1: Disney at this period are doing sort of Xerox animation, right? They are.
0: So this is the this is. Not only pol- uh, post uh, Golden Age Disney animation; it's it's sort of post Walt Disney mm. himself, who who died in I think sixty six or sixty seven. So this is right on the on the, yeah, yeah. On the and, end.
1: and Jungle Book is sixty four. It's
0: it's certainly sixties. This leading into Hundred One Dalmatians. It's it's a moment where Disney's relationship to technology takes on a new edge. Previously as we've talked about on this on this podcast, its relationship to realism through the multiplane camera. Here we have Disney's relationship to technology has often been discussed with regards to this particular kind of low budget, low-fi, Xerox style, photostatting, photocopying. Technique, and ultimately that that gives the images a certain degree of compositional looseness and and slightly abstract, which was being reflected in other studios. They're, they're more like drawings, right? They're thick they black
1: are. lines, much more cartoonish. And actually, I think some of the films that Disney are making at this period are gesturing towards that sort of thematic elasticity. A little bit, I misspoke. Sixty-seven, so actually a year before yo Summary. Mm-hmm. And if anyone can remember, of course, there is the. The quote-unquote cameo by the Beatles in uh, *Jungle Book*, mm. where the, the vultures, you know, uh, play. Are, the Beatles, are in, the Beatles in All But Name*. Yeah, yes. yeah. yeah no, so that actually maybe this maybe this is a uh, sort of a
0: late '60s period that's that's got more to say. We tend to think, certainly within in broader histories of, of animation, we think of these. Uh, uh, certainly within the Disney studios, the middle middle years, the post-war years, the sort of the dead years where. Walt's gone, and now we're really... And we get Robin Hood, which is very famously made up f- of footage from other Disney animated films. Mm-hmm. It's kind of cobbled together. So this is a lack of creativity, supposedly whether this is a retrospective view or, or not. Someone should do some work into that. <laughs> um, whether or not this is a actually a, a really rich period because because of films like... And certainly, re- retrospectively, um, Yellow Submarine has been considered a sort of a landmark in pushing feature-length animation away from Disney hyper-realism.
1: It's also, it's sort of, so Disney's cultural influence is supposedly on the wane, at least that's how standard narratives of the Disney studio go, people are starting to lose interest in Disney, their films haven't been consistently as good for a very long time, so this is also emerging in a period where people are starting to re-understand what animation is, and what it's supposed to do, having been so heavily associated with the Disney studio, both in the US and in the UK now there's a, there's a movement of, light, of of willingness to experiment with different types of animation. And actually, you started with Once Upon a Time. I wouldn't mind just going a few seconds before that to the title card, and I noticed the film was a you, which actually took me quite mm. surprised because One, because having seen the movie, I'm not sure I'd show that to a child, although maybe a child could probably get more out of some bits of it than uh, we managed. Um, but the other thing being that I think this is a movie quite widely credited as being um, one of the first feature films in the UK to try to appeal directly to an adult audience and to use yes. animation as an adult form. And when we say
0: adult, adult animation has a sort of thorny knotted history when we think of adult animation there are, so Carl Cohen has written a very good book called Forbidden Cartoons which is about sort of cartoons with a certain degree of salacious content then we move and, and look at figures like Ralph Bakshi who has a particular relationship to, to the adult of animated drawings and and where animation certainly is a rebellion perhaps against against Disney wholesomeness but obviously adult animation doesn't have to be knob gags
1: no sure I think there's a difference between uh, adult animation animation for grown-ups and adult animation animation with adult adult content and all this sort of thing and
0: so more recent adult
1: animation or animation
0: that's aimed to adults things like Waltz with Bashir perhaps yeah. Persepolis these things that have got a particular um biographical element actually and 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 are things that are both experimental in ter- experimental but experimental in terms of their form but also their content these are feature length narratives that aren't musicals for example they are they're 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 not only pushing the boundaries of animation but they're actually pushing the boundaries of what what we think of as adult animation, this is not necessarily cartoons with particular kind of profane content that needs to be regulated, yeah. and the, the famous Disney, the censored 11. These and now,
1: and nowadays that idea that you can make animated films for grown-ups is a pretty, you know, we have just had Isle of Dogs which is sort mm-hmm. of the Wes Anderson movie, um, films like this exist quite a lot these days, but but Yellow you know, Submarine is actually seen in animation history, if I dare try and do the animation <laughs> part of this. Uh, partnership um as a film that sort of helped to spark that cultural understanding that you don't just have to make uh, mainstream feature length animations for children they can be aimed at and targeted at a more mature audience and do well out of that and am i right in thinking that this is actually quite an influential film on future animators that perhaps have done done that speaking to adults quite well i know john Lasseter, for example yes. um is a fan, and I think The Simpsons have quoted heavily from Yellow Submarine yes, at various yes. points.
0: So there's a really interesting distinction between um, adult animation and the idea you know, of seriousness, yeah. and that, maybe that's where this question of sincerity comes. Uh, animation is a, a serious art form within the chronology of of certainly American animation. This this film is, as I said, post the studio. It's it's also po- post the work of the UPA studio, so the United Productions of America studio, which were um, a studio that were very um, geometric, abstract in the way that they approached the cartoon. They pioneered a, a technique known as limited animation, which is the removal of certain drawings and therefore the cer- certain frames so the resultant movement is not smooth, it's slightly jerkier. And so this is a, an interesting uh, pivot point film, if you like, because it is it seems to be speaking or looking back to the kind of animation that audiences may have been familiar with in an American context, Warner Brothers, Disney, and resistance or, or um, shifts against that with the UPA studio. But it's also looking forward to Bakshi.
1: Well, it's also, it's also made during a period in which we get a move towards uh, high fantasy literature and, and high fantasy storytelling. So basically, we've had a generation of people by this point who have been raised on a very different kind of fantasy narrative from say the sort of Victorian literature that we were talking about in previous podcasts. So people who have been growing up what, reading pulp comics and, and pulp artists um, who by the sort of 50s and 60s are writing fantasy novels. So this is obviously uh, mid-50s is when Lord of the Rings first comes out, it becomes a massive bestseller and there's this weird period that's sort of forgotten now in conventional narratives of fantasy cinema we think fantasy cinema is being very very mainstream and very very sort of uh part of our zeitgeist and our culture because of the success of these film adaptations further down the line but actually we're in a weird period right now in the 60s and the 70s where this is becoming part of youth pop culture but very much part of a sort of counter-cultural anti-authoritarian narrative and rhetoric so Uh, Led Zeppelin and bands like that are quoting Lord of the Rings lyrics Um, Jefferson Airplane are citing Alice in Wonderland and things like that Um, and fantasy literature stories set in other worlds are being actually subsumed as part of a sort of 60s psychedelic youth revolt hippie culture Um, and I think that's also interesting in in that the way the way fantasy is being used here it's bonkersness is is partly subversive and partly rebellious it's it's not supposed. I, I think back to your question of seriousness. Yes. It's a sort of punkish, anarchic quality to it. You know, th- this world doesn't make sense, but that's kind of all right, and it's meant to be sort of enjoyed because of its lack of ability to be con- understood or controlled. Well, I say, there's some sort of punkish energy to that.
0: Well, the isn't one of the running sort of lines of dialogue. Is it's all in the mind. It's yeah. sort of explained away. It's it's fine. It's it's all in the mind. So or George always or keeps saying over yes. and over again. So the 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 as you say the bonkersness of it uh, is is reversed. So where uh, where does the where are we saying the uh, anarchy comes from? It comes from its its style that is kind of trading in these bold colours, primary colours, um, emphasis on the black line yeah. as it. As, and we see characters with with outlines. It has a kind of limited animation style. It's also mixed media. There's some live action footage. There's some um, sort of Photography, and then obviously at the very, very end of the film, spoiler alert, you see the the real Beatles um, in live action. So there's some it's it's it pioneering a certain kind of or exploiting a certain kind of limited animation style, as much as it is also playing with uh, different forms of, of media and, and representation. It has some brilliant set pieces, and we'll talk a bit about the Liverpool sequence. So,
1: and, and I think ultimately some of this stuff is meant to be create, you know, in that sort of Utopian uh, hippie uh, ideal. It's meant to be inducing an altered state of consciousness and Mm. and enjoying the trippiness, yeah, the trippiness in every proper sense of the world. But this is a word where trippiness doesn't isn't fatuous anymore. It means uh, something that can be quite politically useful in that it's it's inducing a state of being that is against the sort of stale, authoritative, conservative. Older generation.
0: So that's interesting that the the word trip has a double function insofar <laughs> as it's yeah. you know it's it the, the, the way that the film starts it's the narrative as much as it is the the um, bits that are hung on the narrative. So it's part of the premises of the, of the film is that um, a very kind of depressed Ringo is mooching around Liverpool and gets taken on board and they and they sort of um, that's where the journey narrative starts really. Yeah. So the trip is positioned as something. I was trying to latch on to the normality of the film against which the fantasy was judged, and that was one of the only moments at the start where we see where we see kind of Liverpool and the use of animation to create a sense of space and depth, and Ringo walking through the streets of uh, Liverpool and talking about chucking himself in the River Mersey, but won't because he's uh, scared of water or can't swim or something yeah, like that. Yeah, it's yeah. like water, um, and with a kind of wink and a, and a, and a nudge at the audience. Oh, no, it's
1: because it, it's the water's too dirty. There you go.
0: Yeah, yeah. So. There are references, and that was the closest moment I felt that okay, there's a degree of normality here, uh, given that we are about to go on this fantastical trip. This is the closest we get to a normality against which we might consider the the other yeah. Pepperland and and the other seas.
1: So we're jumping ahead, is so just to sort of quickly, and I've been desperate to say these words out loud, so I'm very excited to do so. So we start in Pepperland, this sort of magical world under the sea where music is played 24 hours a day. Yes. Pepperland is invaded by the, the Blue Meanies. Yes. Who are sort of this strange sort of... I think they
0: they would become the Blue Man Group later, <laughs> later along, along the line.
1: Yeah, 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 much more commercially successful. And they uh, yes. seem to reconcile. They don't like music. They don't seem to no. like anything. They want to mess everything up. They take over the land. It's all horrible. So they send uh, one of the colonels on a quest in a yellow submarine to go track down... Um, someone that can come back and bring music back into Pepperland. It is
0: interesting that their first port of call of all the Beatles was Ringo. They obviously wanted a bit of rhythm and a, and a sense it's of kind of the, the role of the drummer as the backbone of the uh, yeah. of the band.
1: I think Ringo's. There's loads <laughs> of anti-Ringo jokes in this um, yes. in this film. Ringo's like made fun of quite a lot by the other Beatles. Um. Yes.
0: So he's. I mean, it's just an interesting. Interesting way to to start. And as I said, we go to Liverpool, we have the Eleanor Rigby.
1: Which, to me, is one of the most effective scenes in the movie. It's it's setting up Liverpool, but it's using really sort of interesting animation style. It's blending live-action photography of the Liverpool city. There's this really sort of powerful moment where we get these sort of flat... Animation pivot on the side, and it becomes sort of—it suddenly has depth. It suddenly grows. I don't know the process behind it. I'm sure my memory, Chris, can speak to that. I don't know, um, but you sort of—you see these sort of flat row of houses, and then almost like a sort of pop-up book. You get house, ha- row of house after row of house after row of house, and the expressionism of the animation is used to sort of instill this quite humdrum, social realist, um, but poetic vision of the harshness of Liverpool in the '60s. Picks up the rice in the church where a
0: wedding has
1: been, lives in a dream. Wait. Chris, I'm going to have to interrupt the podcast here at this point. I don't know if you know about this, but I've just heard about this website called Facebook.
0: No, it's not ringing anything. Oh, well, I,
1: I'm, I'm not surprised because it's really where all the cool kids are hanging out these days. Um, it's um, and you uh, and, and, and and me. Uh, we have a new Facebook page. Uh, we decided to get with the times and get involved. So you can like us on Facebook by searching Fan Fancy Animation, uh, and you'll find our page through the various search engines.
0: It will be full of delights. It'll have information about uh, events. It'll take you uh, on a journey through some of the stuff we've been doing but also um, hopefully introduce you to to new members that people that are kind of liking the page so hopefully you'll be you'll be part of a a larger growing community
1: yes and uh, crucially each week we'll be posting a discussion forum based on the blog entry of that week as well as uh, things to time with the podcast So right now we have one up about asking for uh, submissions for future podcast ideas. Uh, Please have a talk online and we'll probably take some of those suggestions and think about them for future episodes. So if there's something you're particularly wanting us to cover or there's an angle we should go down that we perhaps haven't thought about, we'd like to hear about you.
0: So if you like the sound of our voices and would like to continue hearing the sound of our voices talk about the thing that you're interested in, please do get in touch through the usual channels, obviously um, website and so forth. But do check out our new Facebook
1: page. Yeah. Otherwise, we're on Twitter, Fan in research and fantasy-animation.org.
0: I don't know what Twitter is. We'll have to deal with that another time.
1: Sure, I'll show you on Instagram later. It's funny
0: you mention the uh, social, the, the sort of gritty, gritty realism. There are references to the British New Wave in the film. Uh-huh. So there is one moment, so the British New Wave... Is kind of comes out of the the British documentary movement, as pioneered by John Grierson and, and, and others, and Humphrey Jennings and, and, and figures like that. So it's a sort of per, post-Griersonian British social realism, exemplified by a certain kind of kitchen sink uh, reality filmmakers, um, Carol Reese, Tony Richardson films Saturday Night and Sunday yeah. Morning, a central character of which is the angry young man. So and they mentioned that, don't the, they? this man who is personified in some sense by by Albert Finney in Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, her, who's sort of Working in a particular kind of it's Saturday Night Fever. Twenty years before, it's a a guy who's angry, angry at the world, angry at himself. He can't can't keep a a, a girl down. Goes out drinking. It's it's very local, very um, less Bee Gees in that there, less, yeah. ver- <laughs> which and to my mi- to my mind, Saturday Night Sunday Morning is all the poorer for. Uh, it, uh, most I mean.
1: movies are, yeah. in my opinion. Um, um.
0: And so that ref that brief reference that there is to the to the British New Wave. I, th- I can't remember which one of the Beatles says yeah. it but looks at the character and says oh he must be one of those angry young men so there's yeah. a really interesting this film is, is self-consciously saying that we are not the British uh, the, we are an Brit- example of a British uh, film that is not like the kinds of movies that were that Britain, British cinema was being defined by mm-hmm. it's closer on the spectrum to, the, um, to a Bond movie than it is a, a, a kitchen sink British social realist movie so that was a really interesting moment where the film is declaring it's its identity as a, a new kind of British cinema. It's really
1: interesting. the politics of this? Because I say this sort of psychedelic hippie culture is very much associ- associated with the radical left. It's interesting. This movie came out in sixty eight. <laughs> um, you know, but, but at the same time, the Beatles in, in the film are sort of these sort of beyond politics, punkish pranksters. Yeah, they're, 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 carnivalesque is the right word. They they are they are not. There's no agenda. No. It's all deconstruction. There's no construction going on here. Um, which I think is perhaps you know part of the joy of the Beatles and everyone can sort of enjoy enjoy them regardless of your politics because they aren't really um, well everything's political but they aren't really political figures in that respect and their and their politics and it seems to be bouncing against that but not towards something that's stale or familiar or traditional but enacting that rebellious quality in these movies through play and through uh, metamorphosis and all these kind of really fun amazing. Um, experimental visual sequences so
0: I read it's interesting you say deconstruction because I read it as a
1: a deconstruction
0: of, of animation I'm interested in the relationship between the Beatles song Nowhere Land or Nowhere Man yeah but that talks about Nowhere Land uh, and its use of blank space and so some of the lyrics to Nowhere Man are things like he's a real nowhere man sitting in his nowhere land uh, making all his nowhere plans for nobody doesn't have a point of view knows not what he's going to do so the use of blank space in the film and the the the, the role of the role of absence the fact that this is uh, seems to be a film that is deconstructing the idea of the the animated shot it just takes things away we have scenes that are against white background scenes against black background scenes against no background whatsoever brightly coloured backgrounds. There is a strand of animation, deconstructive animation that Paul Wells talks about in his book on on animation, genre, and authorship. One of the genres of animation, the deconstructive cartoon. The film's sense of rebellion, I think, is partly in line with that. We don't see the animation process. The hand doesn't come in and draw and and we don't we don't get an idea of, of the ontology of these images as, as animated drawings. But there is certainly something about the film is very Happy to just take some information, visual information away, and what you're left with is a, a sort of blank white spaces where these characters sort of float in between, quite abstractly. That was part of the link to Inside Out. These moments in the film where you are, you are denied the animation that you are kind of being bombarded with in other scenes.
1: And I think the narrative's doing that as well. I think it's mm. delighting in its, um, in its episodes. It's delighting in its deviations from the narrative thrust. It's it's part of its punk spirit. I keep using the word punk. Punk's probably not the right word because 'cause we're not quite in punk, but it's it's rebellious countercultural spirit is to gleefully um, ignore what it, what the narrative is supposed to be doing. So we get this plot where the guy's turned up. He wants to take the Beatles back to Pepperland. Um, he Ringo takes him to see the other Beatles up in the in their house, and yep. their house is this like really. Like this castle of menagerie of fantastical monsters and Scooby Doo esque endless <laughs> corridors where people run up and down and in and out. Um, and that is really interesting in there. Each beat was introduced, their public persona is slightly lampooned. So when we go to see George, he's sitting in this giant, like um, Indian uh, sitar, yeah. you know, orientalist fantasy, yes. he's, he's mocked for his sort of spirituality and then he joins the quest and all that sort of stuff. So they're sort of, they're picking apart they're, they're, they're subverting our narrative expectations, they're subverting our expectations of these Beatles characters and they're having fun with the unruliness of the storytelling. And it's a, a film,
0: you know, it's starring the Beatles, about the Beatles based on a, a song by the Beatles um, it is its musical director is the manager of the Beatles, mm-hmm. and so the, the you're right that the the references that we get to the Beatles in the film are about the shifting image of the Beatles through time. We kind of get the different versions of the the Beatles that are historically contingent. So we get early Beatles, but we also get Sgt. Pepper Beatles. Yeah. Um and
1: actually that is And and the actually the band in Pepperland are called uh, that the, the these Beatles are being sort of summoned to replace uh, the Sgt. Pepper Lonely Hearts Club Band. That's there's no coincidence it's called Pepperland for that reason.
0: So it seems like the animation is well served. There's a match here between the 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 shifting kind of cultural identity of the Beatles as they move through time and and, and incarnate different uh, styles of music yeah. different personas and so on. Um, animation is very good at uh, it's this film is all about movement and travel and journeys and, and trip uh, tripping and and just forms of change like I that's where my that was when my headache reappeared <laughs> because we were, I was getting a deconstruction of animation at the same time as I was getting these really radical stylistic shifts. I was being taken. and narrative
1: shifts, right as well. Like the, yeah. the storytelling, I, I honestly believe is deliberately uh, bad, for want of a better word. You know, there, there are shifts from oh, what we're going to do? Well, let's just go over there for a bit, and then that's five minutes of the movie justified. You know, there's um, the way they crowbar the way. Um, all, um, all you need is love. Into the movie is that they the meanings attack with these sort of great big omniscient powerful gloves that sort of are minds of themselves and they. I think is it John that just sort of goes oh, oh all you need is glove. all you need is love and then off we go for another three minutes. Yes. and I don't think that's just bad storytelling I think that is a, a sort of a thumb a, a finger up to narrative cohesion and narrative trajectory and I'm thinking back to sort of like surrealist theory and surrealism which is often sort of talked about in fantasy circles as being you know a sort of political version of fantasy in that surrealism is so anti-narrative because what is narrative but an attempt to order the world. Um, So surrealist movies like to attack at their own narrative. You know, if you think back to sort of Dali movies or things like that, they um, or um, Buñuel films, uh, they like to set up a narrative expectation and then break them. Famously in, Sh- in, in chandelier we get the intertitles you know uh, once upon a time eight weeks later two hours before later that day spring you know to, to deliberately confuse the temporal storytelling I think some of that in a much more playful softer way is going on here it's not it's not just that no one can think about it that the plot is ramshackled it's deliberately ramshackled because it's trying to be because ramshackledness is is disorder And a nicely three-act structure is order. That can make for a frustrating viewing, I suspect, to some people. But you've obviously got to go with it if you want to embrace the fun of the movie.
0: But given that this is also a musical, some of the charges um, that have been levelled against the musical, and particularly more recent shifts in the musical towards jukebox musicals that are oriented around the work of a particular artist, a particular band... um, one of the issues has been the, obviously the integration, the sort of narrative integration, the role of narrative in, in the musical and how do we get from, so how do we get from narrative to a spectacle in the form of a musical number in the musical? And this sort of contemporary shift to jukebox musicals, films like um, uh, Mamma Mia or even movies like Rock of Ages that are about particular genres of, of, of music um, more broadly given that the songs exist before the film and before the, the kind of construction of a narrative that integration is exaggerated because you're trying to integrate pre-existing songs into a narrative structure that they were never designed to be in and so a lot of a lot of stuff around jukebox musicals and, and certainly films like Mamma Mia is, is that how do we get from the narrative to the to the, the the musical number and is it is it a trailing line that the last line of dialogue in the in the narrative is the first line of the the song. And so that that seemed to be happening here. This is a jukebox musical, sort of 30 years um, before... Yeah, I think
1: the only thing I think is that I think... Well, I think one is that jukebox musicals aren't new, are they? They've been around in in musicals. Mm. You know, Singing in the Rain is a jukebox musical. It's just, I guess, they have a slightly larger repertoire of songs to choose between. But I think what those films try to do is obfuscate the problem. Yeah, they try to... Okay, let's try and crowbar this in. I really think what's going on in The Beatles is a sort of... Um, it's 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 they're not trying to make this make cohesive sense.
0: No, but I suppose what they are dealing with are a set of recognizable popular songs. Yeah. That at the same time, this is both an advert for the Beatles at the time and the songs that were being produced at the time. All together now, for example, is is the, the song that the film ends on. But it's also it is trying to deal with, and I don't know whether it successfully does this, but it is trying to negotiate and and bring to bear a set of, you know, an archive of songs that the, the band is, is kind of known for. Well, it just depends what you mean by the
1: word successful, because surely um, successful has an ideological charge. Do you mean successfully narratively? What, in, successful in the way that they're integrated, do you mean? Or? Yeah, but, what, but I don't think the film is aiming for integration. No, uh, but I... I, um, but I, it thi- it's I think it's aiming to be disorderly in its integration. It enjoys going, okay, we've gone over here for five minutes because now we're going to sing that song that's relevant to nothing, but you'll enjoy it because this makes no sense.
0: But it's interesting that they are the exact same debates... That musical scholars have been wrestling with for sixty years.
1: But it's not just musical scholars. I, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I'm very familiar. With, well, I'm familiar with the debate that you're referring to. But I, I do wonder whether that's um, a slight red herring. In that, I think comedy theorists have the same debate, yeah, absolutely. and fantasy theorists have the same yeah. debate. You know, so it's all about this process of integration. I just wonder whether it speaks to a wider problem, which is that we're just a bit obsessed with narrative and narrative cohesion and three act structures a little bit, which makes it difficult to talk about films that aren't. Actually, that interested in that, and that's pleasure or success lies in not only having an an antagonistic relationship with it, but having a transcendental transcendental relationship with it. It's not interested in doing any of the things that we expect, or you know, films like this to do. And I think this is back to. I think the fantasy of this movie isn't a fantasy narrative. It's the fantasy of the experience. It's a psychedelic fantasy experience, and it's interested in inducing that into its audiences, or at least that's how it's been received, and that's what the pleasure in it. But, you know, to put put more simply, it's a film that in, that asks you to sort of stare at it with bemusement and enjoy that amusement.
0: Because it has a series of set pieces, like it is, it does have narrative organisation, but its series of set pieces could be taken out and swapped around and changed the order. That is one of the benefits, I suppose, of a broader overarching journey narrative, that these are just different, each of the realms that the, um, the Fab Four visit are places that could just be, there's no reason why one comes before the other. And so, to some extent, I do think there is, there is certainly an, if you, are, if you are a band like The Beatles with that, success, that sort of back catalogue of songs, what i was in, I was interested in how they were on a on any kind of level going to get from the story, however loose however broad however yeah. flexible to a to a song and the glove love example is is a perfect that does seem to dramatize the whole historical relationship between narrative and spectacle in this film the yeah the the ordering of the, the narrative organization is very as I said, it's ne- it's negligible. It's it's very. Inter- well, it's it's disorganized. Yeah.
1: But that you can't have a disorganized narrative without a semblance of what it should look like. Yeah. So this isn't an abandonment of narrative. It's narrative disorganization.
0: Yeah, it begins at the beginning and and ends at the end.
1: Well, a- sort of, sort of. It, it begins in without the Beatles. It ends with the Beatles. It doesn't end with any kind of narrative closure. It ends with a. Uh, a uh, who is who is, is it? I think it's Frank Frank Kruknick who talks about comedy uh, endings and he talks about uh, the uh, take a bow moment at the end of comedies mm-hmm. where you can either end with the end of a story or you can end with a bow and a cheer, like a comedy sketch doesn't end at the end of the story it ends with the biggest gag and that's the natural ending, I think this ends like that it's, it ends with a um, ta-da moment, not a uh, that's a moment of narrative foreclosure. No,
0: and in fact, it does the opposite. It uses it uses the live action footage of the Beatles at the end to 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 tantalise the possibility of a sequel or not a sequel, but certainly a, um, subsequent narrative event. So they are talking about well, we see the the blue meaning. We see the the blue man group are coming again. We need to find a way. Oh well, we need to sing again. And so it's it's and it ends. I mean, it's it's. It ends in a way that gives that segment a sense of closure, but also it's inconsequential that we've ended actually. Yeah. Uh, it's very much like the use of the Spice Girls at the end of Spice World for those of course. Are, It ends and that was nineteen ninety-seven, so there we go. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. that is that uses the kind of real life footage of the stars, the celebrity, not as characters but as themselves. Uh, speaking out, you know, this is very a self-reflexive moment at the end where the Beatles are talking to the audience. They're showing us the, the artifacts that they found on their on their journey, uh, talking to each other and then looking out at us. So it it, it functions in the same way as a, a climactic musical number where it gestures outwards. The curtains close. It's the
1: end. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Very so so. It, like, I'm just trying to think we, we've sort of we like the Beatles themselves yes. we wandered away from the plot there there is no there plot is, there isn't really a plot yeah. so they jump through a bunch of they dr- jump on the other submarine they go on a series of sort of uh, various, they travel through various seas and we have numerous um, musical numbers along the way. I do want to talk, I don't know why I want to talk about him, but I th- I've now got a new favourite character in all cinema histories. They've, is he, uh, he's replay- he or she, I think uh, gender wise there's a, a deliberate androgyny going on here, but the uh, character of um, oh I've forgotten. Jeremy Hillary Boob Jeremy Hillary Boob PhD, PhD or, or foot as they say yep. uh, the <laughs> The character they meet in the Sea of Nowhere, or Nowhere lands it's, it's
0: in somewhere sitting in this sea of nothing is this creature that kind of looks like a clown, but also like an aardvark. Yeah. Or, I don't know, something.
1: I must complete my bust. Two novels, finish my blueprints, begin my beguine.
0: I mean, must you always talk in rhyme? <laughs> if I spoke prose, you'd all find out. I don't know what I talk about. Ad-hoc, ad hoc, and quid pro quo. So little time, so much to know. Hey, fellas, look. The footnotes for my 19th book. This is my standard procedure for doing it. And while I compose it, I'm also reviewing it. A boob for all seasons. How can he lose? Will your notice is good? It's my policy never to read my reviews. There must be a word for what he is. This, this for me, was, was Inside Out. Inside Out must have looked at this. Yeah. This character.
1: What are you talking about um, the imaginary friend in yeah. Inside Out,
0: uh, whose name I've instantly forgotten? Yeah, this is good, good one, good podcast. Listeners, listeners
1: screaming at us right now that their name is. Should we leave a gap for the listeners to tell us? Yeah, or we could just dub it in later. That's right. So, so the the name is. That's right. That's right. Yeah, you're right. You're correct about that. Thank you. Um, yes, I know exactly the character. Um, Bing bong. Bing
0: bong. Yes. Thank you. yes, yes, yes uh, Bing bong. right. Bing bong. So. I would be very surprised if this film, given, given Lasseter... No, it's got to be, it's got to be. Lasseter has come out and said the influence of this film. I can't see a world in which Jer- Jeremy... And I never thought I'd say this. I can't see a world where Jeremy Hillary Boob, PhD, was not the influence... Uh, I I Hall.
1: love Jeremy Hillary, Hillary Boob. He um he is uh, a character who knows a lot, knows everything, speaks in rhyming couplets, seems yep. to know everything from Newtonian, Eisensteinian relative yep. relative physics to dentistry. history, of art, to dentistry. Yes. But yet makes no sense and is ineffectual. Again, I think that might be a sort of lovely gesture of sort of intellectualism and the power of rationality and all this sort of stuff. Yes. It's,
0: actually, that's interesting because I'm I'm wondering whether the, the Beatles don't learn anything. On this oh no, you no, know, there's not. no, there's they don't come. At the, this is not a building's romance. They don't at the end of it go well. we'll all, thank goodness we've all learned to be more moral, yeah, to be yeah. better people, to be kinder
1: of to Ringo, and uh, yeah, they've to, certainly not learned that. No. no, no, no. So yeah.
0: this is and this is about this is about music as well. This is about the power of music. It's that's what the, the if we're talking about any kind of semblance of narrative, yeah. it's about the ability of music to break down the hardest of statues. Yeah. Um that's what the film is about and is it so is this an immersive fantasy because we're just in it we're just we're just in the fantasy world worlds yeah there aren't there is no attempt I i
1: think this might be where it's important we've used these terms quite a lot on some of the other previous episodes but remember the terms come from a book on what's called the rhetorics of fantasy and it's about the the powers of writing to persuade and the different techniques And i think there are there are useful ways in which we can talk about that in a cinematic context and I'm not one of these people that think we can't talk about any literary context in a cinematic term because books are books and film is film stories are stories and therefore these ideas can transcend however with a movie like this it's difficult because I think if you look at the strict narrative you could argue it's a portal quest because basically you have um, characters from supposedly the real world going to you submarine except that at that point the, your your ex you know the experiential reality of watching this movie means that you at the moment the film starts the moment the film ends you are asked to um, be immersed in the visuals and all this sort of stuff so I'm not quite sure those those terms work that well right here. for me this is a psychedelic fantasy it's right. a fa- it's a fantasy that is interested in inducing um, to embrace fantasy uh, as a act of spectatorial meaning, right? And talking about the imagination, for want of a better word. It, it wants you, you know, in that classic surrealist sense, it wants you to break away from trying to make things make sense and focus instead on feeling and on induced states of consciousness. And let's be honest, we haven't even talked about drug culture yet. This is a movie to watch whilst tripping, as the other trip that we, we need to sort of make explicit, yeah? This is a movie to watch whilst high, high in the sky with your friends, uh, laughing at the absurdity of what's happening. Yeah, this is a movie to share with pe- with mates because it because it makes no sense and it gleefully doesn't. So I have a question about the role of the,
0: the musical numbers. It's sort of a looking at the list of, of musical numbers in the film and the, the Lennon and McCartney songs that are in there. It's sort of a greatest hits in terms of... We can review the narrative, but in terms of the music, we have obviously Yellow Submarine, yep. uh, Eleanor Rigby, uh, A Bit of a Day in the Life, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, uh, and then it ends with a sort of... Uh, triumphant of Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, with a little help from my friends, and then all you need is love. Yeah, and it, even in between
1: them, we get things like references to help. Yes, love we that bit where, where help, I need somebody. You know, yes. all that kind of stuff. So but.
0: it's it's sort of a, a in many ways a, a greatest hits tour through some of the the Beatles mm-hmm. um, songs, which is which is obviously terrific. I wonder what the musical we mentioned earlier, "Loose in the Sky with Diamonds," being a musical number where suddenly there's a bit of coherence. <laughs> What ha- in in these musical numbers traditionally we think of them as more expressive spaces, but they are are they the reverse? Suddenly these are the songs actually give a sense of structure for the first time in the a, a degree of coherence. And I'm wondering what the the musical numbers do in in a film that is a, a musical or an animated musical fantasy. We tend to think of of yeah musical numbers as places where creativity can can free reign, but in a film where it's so creative and so vibrant and so energetic. Does that, what does that then do to the musical numbers?
1: Also, um, and the, I'm gonna mention Lacan for the second podcast in a row here, words are both the way we express ourselves, but also the way we are expressed by others. Words are given to us, they are not ours so I think there's also something I'll interesting about the yeah, yeah, Chris. that's uh, Chris Holliday's book uh, yeah. How to Do Things with Words that's yeah. a joke for about four people in the world and one of them's name is Ed Lamberti and he doesn't listen to podcasts and the other three might not even listen to this yeah. anyway so, 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 so a that, joke for us so that was a good five seconds overall um, but my point being in that is that there's a lot written on sort of um the relationship between the symbolic and musicals i think richard dyer talks about the music's the musical number being um an entrance into the pre-symbolic in a script that otherwise is about talking yeah in the talk in the world of the talkies 30s and 40s musicals are moments where we're allowed to slip back into the pre-symbolic because actually a lot of their meaning is communicated through uh, rhythm through gesture through sensuality all this kind of stuff. But I think you're right with this movie, and I hadn't thought about it until you articulated it there. What What is interesting is that the 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 slippage the things, the pushing away from order, the push away to chaos and disorder is all happening in the narrative because we already know the songs, the songs are comforting and they are, yes. they are the words that we already know and the things that we already know, their language coming back into the world. So there is something about that actually. The least trippy moments are the musical numbers.
0: So this is a fantasy animation intersection that also pulls into its orbit questions of, of genre in other ways it pulls in if fantasy and animation have a sort of fraught relationship with with um, genre identity and, and their, their identity is generic frames then here we have the role of the, the musical this is a lot of animated fantasies are, are musicals as, as Disney have told us this is a really interesting uh, sort of jukebox musical that, that works with questions of integration of its musical numbers into narrative but also the relationship between fantasy and, and and animation and and where fantasy and animation meet is different in the musical numbers than it is in the kind of narrative portions.
1: I would say so. I think that in a way there's less energy in the musical numbers as much as I enjoyed them because the musical numbers are songs we already know. So it's almost, like, I mean, in a modern day sense, they feel like pop videos, right? Yes. Really well animated pop videos, whilst the rest of it, there is a certain chaos to it because you don't know what the hell is going on. Um, and there's, there's an energy to that, and I, and I like it. Well, and as Wikipedia says, this is, of course, the classic animated musical fantasy comedy film that, you yeah. know, that classic category. That, that rolls things, off tough. Yes. Um, and then definitely there's a, there's a slippage going on there. All these things that... We, and we've talked about comedies. We've talked about musicals today. So there's definitely... There's so many mm. mutual aesthetics and interrelationships going on between different experiences that we codify by terms like comedy, musical yeah. uh, genre that's going on here. But it's all about trying to, I think, get away from a sense of order to a sense of disorder and the various ways it tries to do that. Mm. I have some
0: I have nothing to say about comic books, but I was also struck by its kind of comic book mm-hmm. comic book aesthetic and there are there are a few moments in the film there's a few citations to other movies there's a, a very brief reference if i remember to king kong where a hand comes into the bedroom and picks up a uh, i think it's paul i can't remember a a yeah. beetle insert beetle um, and there's also
1: references to pop art. There's lots of sort of yeah, like Andy kind of Warhol-esque print,
0: prints, and- print cartoon traditions, and and a few bits that reminded me of Windsor McKay and the juddering of the drawings, which um, animation scholars have referred to as boiling. So there's an excellent article, I think, by Dan Torre that talks about boiling, where individual drawings aren't necessarily the same, and so there's a slight discrepancy in the in the the wiggling of the animated image sort of boils a little bit. So this I don't have anything much to say about about comic books apart from I noticed a lot of the action went from left to right, right to left. And it reminded me of a, of a of a comic book. I'm sure there's lots of things to say about the role of the comic book in the 60s and 70s. Yeah, but I don't know well, too much. Well, about.
1: nor nor do I really. I mean, other than that it speaks to this this counterculturalism yeah. of, of fantasy that I've already alluded to earlier. Um, I also think it might speak to TV fantasy, right? And this is also dealing with a grammar of Looney Tunes and things like that that are, again, fighting for cultural supremacy within the US and the UK as. Yeah. As the main standard bearer of mainstream animation,
0: there's the, the, an image that sort of um, symbolises the chaos of the the film. Is, is I, and I can't remember exactly the the moment, but where there are all these kind of TV screens and pile cascading piles of rubbish, and on a TV screen it just says the word Freud.
1: Yeah, I noticed that. Um, I know that. you.
0: I know you noticed that. Um, and so this sort of plethora of different sounds and images and different mixed media forms that are given some kind of semblance of order, as you say, not through the narrative but through the musical numbers, which is, which is sort of the reverse of how we've been conditioned and invited to understand the musical seem to be to be reflected in that, in that image where the, the camera, if you like, moves from, from right left to left and we see all these different artifacts and objects and with different words and, and uh, different colors and, and the prominence of the flashing word Freud signal to me that there's something, and that connects back to your to your the stuff you were saying about surrealism. That there is, this is a film like animation as a whole. If, if surrealism is above the real and a comment on the real, animation is animation is inherently surrealist because it is rhetorical and so is a comment on the the real mm-hmm.
1: in and of itself. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think, and to sort of bring it back to the narrative. It starts with a film about characters saying no, and it ends with the film with characters saying yes. And in fact, not only yes, but we should all all together now. Yeah. We should all say yes. Yeah, so there's a certain um, collectivism to all that as well, which speaks nicely to sort of Beatles music and Beatles Mania- thematics. Yeah, Beatles. We're all we're all Beatles maniacs. We're all Beatles maniacs, indeed. Well, I enjoyed our magical mystery tour, Chris.
0: I can't believe you've ended, in Pepper, all I have to say is in Pepperland, yeah. all things are possible. Much like this podcast, all things are possible.
1: Yeah, unless you encounter a blue meanie. Um, yeah, correct. And, and and it's getting late now, um, we've actually waffled on for slightly longer than we normally do on these podcasts, so uh, enjoy that bumper for extra. It's now 6pm uh, in, um, in London, uh, so Chris and I are going to go experience our own uh, blue meanies in Pepperland, or I think it's called uh, Bloomsbury. Yes. Uh, on On a Saturday night, so we'll we'll head to that and um, and share a beer or two as we think on this movie. Um, we hope you do the same wherever you are, unless it's too early in the morning when you're listening to this. If you're out for that jog, don't stop and have a beer. It's probably um, not uh, a good time. But we end the podcast for another um, another week. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye. One two three four. Can I have a little
0: more? Five six. Seven, eight, nine, ten, 8, I love you A, B, C, D Can I bring my friend T,
1: E, F, G, H, I, J